God's creation is a wonder to behold. And we're going to talk about that some today. In case you haven't noticed, we've officially entered the Christmas season. Decorations are starting to show up all over town, aren't they? All around us. Retailers are advertising all the great deals to be had on merchandise. Christmas music um, is on the radio, much to my chagrin. It's not my... <laughs> it's just the same 20 songs every year. That's my problem with it. Uh, we see it all over the place, though, don't we, this time of year? You know, it's fascinating, too, because I, I, I've known vaguely because I don't pay attention to this, that there's like a Black Friday every year. But something popped up this year. Maybe it's always been. I've never in my life heard of Cyber Monday before. That's, I've never heard of that until this year. And you know how it is if you're a parent. When your kids are little, you can give them like a truckload of toys for very little money. And it's just awesome because, you know, they get these piles of stuff and it's fun and lots of presents to open. But as your kids get older, they get less and less stuff and it costs more and more money. Do you know what I'm talking about? And so I got these two teenagers now, and I got to take out a second mortgage to buy them one gift. And it's all this technology stuff that I, we didn't really grow up with so much. And so there's this Black Friday and Cyber Monday, and, all, and I'm not paying attention to any of it because I don't, I don't even like computers to begin with and all of that stuff. It just doesn't do it for me. I'm not into shopping, to be honest. I mean, if it's a gun or a fly rod or a guitar, now that's a different story. I'll go shopping anytime you want to take me. But all the rest of the stuff doesn't interest me. But my kids want all this stuff and it's expensive. And we don't have tons of money. So, you know, you start calling grandparents and uncles and neighbors and, you know, people on the side of the road. And you're like, can you pitch in to help get my kid this thing he wants, right? And I'm online and I'm looking at some of this stuff and it costs hundreds of dollars. And you're trying to figure out how you're going to pay for it and all that. And so I find this thing I want to purchase, and I'm praying about it, and I'm talking to my wife about it, and we're back and forth, and we're looking at it, and, you know, it's a lot of money. And, and so finally, you know, I said, I'm going to sleep on it. And the next day, I get up, and I said, okay, I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to do it. I'm going to do it. So I go online, and I pull it up, and literally, it's $350 more than it was the day before. And I picked up the phone. And I called Best Buy, and I said, you have a problem. <laughs> and they said, what is that? And I said, you had this thing listed yesterday for this price, and today it's $350 more. And I said, there, clearly there's something wrong. And he said, well, yesterday was Cyber Monday. I said, I don't care if it's Purple Thursday. <laughs> What are you talking about? And he starts to explain to me how these deals on Cyber Monday expired. I'm telling you, there was a moment when I had to remind myself I'm a pastor, you know, and just keep a cork on it because I just about came out of my seat. So anyway, you know, you, you get it, right? Christmas has become something different in our society than it was originally intended to be. Historically, the church, the Christian church, uh, it, it's the season of Advent. The word Advent, we don't use that much anymore, but it means coming or arrival. And the focus of the entire season is the celebration of the birth of Jesus Christ in his first Advent and the anticipation of the return of Christ as King in his second Advent. So the Advent is much more than simply marking a 2,000-year-old event in history. It's also very much about celebrating and anticipating the day when creation will be reconciled to God upon his second coming. It's very interesting. So traditionally, Advent always begins on the fourth Sunday before Christmas Day, which is today. 
Um, that's according to the Western liturgical calendar. It begins in mid-November, I think, in the Eastern churches. But for both, it's considered to be the first season of the church year. And again, historically, um, Advent was and still is for much of the church a time of prayer and fasting in preparation for the second coming of Christ. So, you know, the church all over the world, and still in some, some areas, but for a long time, they would spend the whole season fasting and praying, preparing themselves for the second coming. And that was what Advent was about, and still is for some. But today, I think for many, Advent, the Advent season or Christmas season is more about overspending and overeating. We sort of flip-flop things a bit. Our society, and I think through globalization, uh, societies around the world are losing touch with the original intent of celebrating this season. Of course, there are still Christians here and all around the world that do celebrate the birth of Christ and His imminent return during Advent. That's the true reason we have Christmas. But it's, it's not hard to get caught up in all the material trappings of Christmas, is it? I mean, it's fun to go shopping, isn't it? I mean, that's what my wife says anyway. It's fun to give gifts to people. It is. It's not so bad getting them either. I like that part. It's fun to look at Christmas lights and decorations and watch parades and all the celebrations that go along with that. We have Christmas parties at the office and at church and at school and with our neighbors. Christmas time in general can be a lot of fun, and there's nothing wrong with that, by the way. As long as we accurately represent Jesus Christ to the world during this time, okay? I was going to announce to you this morning in preparing for the sermon that God has a problem. But the more I thought about it, I realized it's not actually his problem. It's our problem. You see, God happens to be invisible. It turns out that's not really a problem for him. But it can make our job a little tougher. As you think about how much easier would it be when you're witnessing to a friend about Jesus, if you could just point to him and say, see that guy over there? Yeah, the one walking on water. He's the one I've been talking to you about, right? He's, he's the reason I act the way that I do. Or you're witnessing to a friend and Jesus is in the next room and just like in John 20 when he came walking through the wall, right? What if you could just call out, hey Jesus, I want you to meet this guy and he comes walking through the wall, right? How much, how much easier at that moment would it be to lead your friend to the Lord? Right? Unfortunately, as great as that would be, we can't do that because God is invisible. Colossians 1.15 says, He, referring to Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. 1 Timothy 1.17 says, To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be glory and honor forever and ever. Amen. Hebrews 11.27 says, By faith he, referring to Moses, left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, referring to Pharaoh, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible, referring to God. John 1.18 and 1 John 4.12 both say that no one has ever seen God. So we know he's invisible, but that doesn't mean he doesn't exist, Right? You've probably heard this story before. There are lots of versions of it floating around on the internet for a long time. But there was an atheist uh, philosophy professor in a well-known university who announced to his class one morning, God does not exist. And one of his students, a freshman in his class who happened to be a Christian, said, Excuse me, sir, but how can you say that? To which the professor replied, Anyone in the class who has ever seen God, raise your hand. And he looked around and no one responded. And he said, okay, anyone in the class who has ever felt God, raise your hand. 
And again, no one responded. And he said, okay, anyone in the class who has ever heard God, raise your hand. And once again, none of the students raised their hands. And he looked around the room, and no one was responding. And the professor said, I rest my case. At that moment, the young Christian student proclaimed, I also have a question for the class. Has anyone here ever seen the professor's brain? Raise your hand. Nobody did. Has anyone in the class ever felt the professor's brain? No one raised their hand. He said, has anyone in the class ever heard the professor's brain? Raise your hand. And after looking around and seeing that no one raised their hand, the young student said, I rest my case. Just because we can't see God with our natural eyes doesn't mean he doesn't exist. But why can't we see him? Why won't he just reveal himself to us face to face? Well, Moses, who has to be at the top of the list of people in all of time who have been in close communication with God, actually asked the same question. Here's how the conversation went. It's in Exodus 33, 18 through 20. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he, meaning God, said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Okay, so according to this, if we could look God in the face, we'd drop dead, right? That could make it tough to convince people that being a Christian is a good thing. Can you picture saying to someone, you know, would you like to accept him as Lord and Savior of your life? He loves you. He has a plan for you. Your life is going to be amazing with him. Just don't look him in the eyes. There has to be a less, less lethal way for us to experience God, right? So the dilemma that we face is this. If we can't see God, how can we introduce others to him? How can we represent someone that we can't point to? The answer is that for all of time, as we know it, God has in fact been revealing himself to man. There's a progressive revelation of God throughout history leading right up to our present day and that's what we're going to talk about today, okay? This is the beginning of a sermon series I've entitled God Revealed and today is going to be an overview. We're going to move just really quickly over the next 20 or 25 minutes through this. And then in the, we're going to talk about the different ways that God reveals himself. So we'll just overview that today. And then over the next couple of weeks, we'll go much more in depth into the nature of God's revelation of himself to us and, and through us to others, okay? So God reveals himself to, to us in many different ways. We see that in scripture. God is revealed in creation. Romans chapter 1, if you want to turn there, verses 18 through 22, and I think we'll have the scriptures on the screen. Romans 1, 18 through 22. Verse 18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. They became fools. Some of the most intelligent scientists and historians and teachers and philosophers and doctors claim there is no God. 
It sounds to me a lot like verse 21. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. You've probably heard the analogy that if you stand on the street and you look at a building and you said to these same wise people that billions of years ago there was an explosion. And over billions of years, that building and all of its order and function as it sits there today, all of its makeup and design, the way that it fits together, all the brick and mortar and glass and steel, it all came together on its own over billions of years and formed that building. Any sane person would say that's crazy. But if you explain that an intelligent person designed that building, made a plan, and built it, that same person would say that makes perfect sense. Likewise, with a watch, a wristwatch. William Paley is a well-known uh, 18th century philosopher and a minister, and he's famous for his analogy of a watch to creation. The idea is the same as the building. He says, if you take a wristwatch and you take it all apart into pieces, and you look at the intricate gears and the cuttings and the, and the springs and the crystal and the steel and all of the parts that go together that all come, that you put together and they, and they create a watch that keeps perfect time. If you said to one of these wise men, this watch wasn't always here. And hundreds of billions of years ago, there was an explosion in space. And all of the molecules and things that it takes to make up the parts of this watch began to come together over time and form slowly over hundreds of billions of years. And they turned into little gears and springs and a, a polished crystal. And over billions of years, they began to come together and eventually evolve into this watch keeping perfect time. You would say that's preposterous. But if you said to the same person, this watch was designed and planned and built by an intelligent being. You would say, of course it was. That makes perfect sense. Listen, how much more infinitely complex and intricate is the earth and everything in it? Just the human body is a wonder in the way everything works together. Yet the wise men of our age are content to accept the notion that there was an explosion somewhere in space and all of this just happened on its own by chance over hundreds of billions of years. But the idea that an intelligent being designed all of this, made a plan, and created it is utterly ridiculous to them and unacceptable. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. God has clearly revealed himself through creation since the beginning of time. Verse 20 says, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. The truth is, we have no excuse. I've been asked many times by unbelievers and by some believers, what about those people that live in a remote part of the world? What about those people that never meet a missionary, that never get to read a Bible, that never get to go to a church service? How is it they are expected to know God? It's a fair question. Let's see what scripture says. Psalm 19. We'll read the first six verses. It says, The heavens declare the glory of God. Meaning the stars and the atmosphere and the planets that declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. 
There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. In other words, it doesn't speak where there is no knowledge, where there is no voice, but the heavens proclaim God. In other words, creation testifies loud and clear that there is, in fact, a creator God. This isn't just a nice piece of poetry. It's outlining the evidence of God throughout creation. If we continue, in them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Colossians 1, 15 and 16. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And again, Romans 1.20, we read it. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, in other words, in his creation, so they are without excuse, okay? God reveals himself through his natural creation so that men are without excuse. If God can reveal himself to people through nature, I'm certain he will answer them if they're earnestly seeking that God, the Creator. See, they don't have to know the story of the Bible to seek the Creator God. But Matthew 7, 7, Jeremiah 29, 13, and Deuteronomy 4, 29 all promise that if we seek Him, we will find Him. And you've, you've probably heard stories, if you've been in church any length of time, of missionaries going to villages, remote places uh, in the world where they've never seen a missionary, never talked to anyone outside of their village, and they were already worshiping Jesus Christ. God can reveal himself to man in his own way. God the creator is revealed in his creation. We saw it in the video we just watched. If you spend any significant time in nature, you see the fingerprint of creator God all over it. I think sometimes some of our scientists and college professors that claim there is no God just need to get out of the lab in the classroom and go take a walk through the woods. You know? The beauty around here, the mountains. Lord, Alaska. Unbelievable. Those mountains, I've stood and looked up at Denali, Mount McKinley. Unbelievable. It's hard to deny there is a God when you get out in creation. A.W. Tozer, one of my favorite authors, in his book, Knowledge of the Holy, says, this is a quote from his book, philosophy and science have not always been friendly toward the idea of God. The reason being that they are dedicated to the task of accounting for things and are impatient with anything that refuses to give an account of itself. The philosopher and the scientist will admit that there is much that they do not know, but that is quite another thing from admitting that there is something which they can never know, which indeed they have no technique for discovering. To admit that there is one who lies beyond us, who exists outside of all our categories, who will not be dismissed with a name, who will not appear before the bar of our reason, nor submit to our curious inquiries. This requires a great deal of humility, more than most of us possess. So we save face by thinking God down to our level, or at least down to where we can manage him. Yet how he eludes us, for he is everywhere while he is nowhere. For where has to do with matter and space, and God is independent of both. He is unaffected by time or motion, is wholly self-dependent, and owes nothing to the worlds his hands have made. 
Some people are very unsettled about the idea of God, but the truth is the evidence of the Creator is all around us. And he uses his creation to reveal himself to us, okay? Number two is God is revealed in his word. First in the Old Testament, the Mosaic Law. Okay, if we turn to John 1 and read verses 16 and 17, it says, And from his fullness, referring to Jesus, we have all received grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Earlier we read from Exodus 33 where God told Moses, you can't see my face or you'll die. And just after that, in Exodus 34, God passes by Moses and declares about himself that he's merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. The phrase there, grace and truth, in John 1, recalls the Hebrew behind the phrase steadfast love and faithfulness in Exodus 34, 6. That's referring to God's covenant faithfulness to his people Israel. Okay, so according to John, God's covenant faithfulness was ultimately in his sending of his son Jesus Christ. The contrast is not that Moses' law was bad and Jesus is good in John 1.16. Rather, the giving of the law and the coming of Jesus Christ both mark decisive events in the history of salvation. In the law, God full of grace and truth revealed his character and righteous requirements to the nation of Israel. God is revealed in the Mosaic Law. Earlier we saw that the first third of Psalm 19 declares that God is revealed in creation. The last two thirds of the same psalm declare that God is revealed in the Mosaic Law, in the Old Testament. When, when God's people sang this psalm, they were celebrating the Torah, the law that was given through Moses as his supreme revelation of himself. Okay, so we'll read just verses 7 through 9. It says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making the wise simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. The terms at the beginning of each of those verses, the law, testimony, precepts, commandment, and rules, all come from the Pentateuch, and they refer to the Mosaic Covenant, the Mosaic Law. God revealed himself through his law in the Old Testament. The point is significant because his Old Testament, or Old Covenant revelations, point to his New Testament, or New Covenant revelations. The two go hand in hand. We talk about the Old Testament and the New Testament like they're mutually exclusive. But the more accurate description, if we're going to separate the two, really would be to say the Hebrew Bible and the Greek Bible. Because it's really all one testament. We often equate the Old Testament with the Old Covenant. And the New Testament with the New Covenant. And I hear people say I'm a New Testament Christian. And I understand what they mean. But the truth is, there's a lot of overlap. There are elements of the New Covenant and certainly foreshadowing of the new covenant all throughout the Old Testament. And of course the Old Covenant extends well into the New Testament where ultimately Jesus comes to fulfill the law and the prophets of the Old Covenant through the New Covenant. So the Hebrew Bible and the Greek Bible fit together as one testament. Okay, And I'm not trying to start a new movement. We can still say Old Testament and New Testament. That's fine. But we can um, refer to those. Well, the New Testament, I guess what I'm saying is uh, the Old Testament is far from irrelevant, which is how 
so many have treated the Old Testament for so long. Uh, it's not abrogated by the New Testament. It doesn't go away because of the New Testament. It wasn't replaced by the New Testament. Okay, it's at least an equal part of this great meta-narrative, this great gospel story in our history. And we see God revealed throughout that Old Testament, Old Covenant, Mosaic Law. Okay, so God's revealed in creation. He's revealed in the Word, uh, first in the Old Testament, in the Mosaic Law, and of course He's revealed in the New Testament. God is revealed in the flesh through Jesus Christ. Okay, back to John chapter 1, verse 14, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. To fully appreciate the magnitude of that verse, which is profound, go back to verse 1 of the same book. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. If the Word was God, and the Word became flesh, that means God became flesh. Revealed in the flesh. Colossians 1, 15 through 20 says, He, referring to, referring to Jesus Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he's before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So God reveals himself here through creation in the very beginning, and then he reveals himself in the uh, Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, in the law. And now Jesus shows up on this scene, and God is revealed in the flesh. He doesn't do away with everything that was before his arrival. He comes to fulfill the law and the prophets. Matthew 5, 17 and 18. Do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So everything God was doing up until Jesus came along was now being revealed through Christ, through the flesh. It's important in the context of a discussion about Christmas because according to Paul, the Gentiles were in big trouble until Jesus came along. Ephesians 2, 11 and 12 says, Therefore remember, this is Paul, that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel <clears throat> and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, that's us, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Christmas is about the revelation of God in the flesh and ultimately what that means for the world. Not just the Jewish people, but everyone else. Jesus' sacrifice for all of us, his substitutionary atonement and subsequent resurrection is the reason that we have an eternal hope. Okay? And I know that we get, uh, we get hung up sometimes on little things. Sometimes I do. But I refuse to say, Happy Holidays instead of Merry Christmas because it's politically correct. There is no Christmas without Christ. 
And I will, to my last breath, defend the memory and celebrate the victory of what he did for me when he willingly took the form of a man and submitted himself to a horrendous death for me. And in my humble opinion, it is offensive to the memory and honor of who God is and what he did when we insist on pretending that Christmas isn't about Christ because we don't want to offend the sensibilities of those around us. All I'm trying to say is don't be afraid to say Merry Christmas, okay? If the rest of the world wants to say Happy Holidays, that's fine. But if we can't muster enough backbone to say Merry Christmas at the office or at school, how are we ever going to be bold enough to share the truth of who God is to the lost? I know that's a small issue, but I think it can be at least symptomatic of a larger problem, a, a fear of witnessing Christ to the world. Right? There are empty seats in this church because we're brand new. And each week since we've opened, we've been growing. We have two new families who have called me this week and, and a single guy, uh, about seven more people who've committed to coming to the church. The only way that we'll continue to grow is if we, all of us, continue to represent Christ to others to those who don't know him, to those who aren't a part of the church of Jesus Christ, okay? And that point leads us to our final destination today in the, these last 10 minutes or so. We'll spend the rest of this time and the next couple of weeks focused on this point right up until Christmas, all right? God is revealed in us. If you want to know how people are to know this invisible God, of course, he's revealed in creation and we can point to that. He's revealed in his word. We can certainly point to that. He had better be revealed in us. We are Christ to a lost and dying world. Okay? I believe that as Christians we have a responsibility to speak the truth about Christ without forcing ourselves on people who aren't interested. Okay? The Holy Spirit generally doesn't force himself on people. There are actually a couple of exceptions to that in Scripture. But generally he doesn't force himself on people and neither should we. Still, if God is truly revealed in us and we're co cooperating with his spirit, I believe that people will want what we have because they'll see him in us. This postmodern, post-Christian society that we live in is looking for a community to belong to where they can feel loved and accepted. If we show the love of Christ, if we allow God to be revealed in us, they will come to find out more about our community which is, of course, the body of Christ. 1 John 4.12 says, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So how is God revealed in us? How does that work? When, when Jesus ascended to the Father in heaven, he promised us another, a comforter, a counselor, the Holy Spirit, who dwells in all followers of Christ. If you profess Jesus Christ, if, if you've committed to following him, if he's dwelling in you, you are filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay? John 14, 16, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. And skip down to verse 26, But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. And quickly, John 15, 26. We're going to skip down through John. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. John 16, 7 and 8. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. 
But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Skip to verse 13. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Okay? The answer is God reveals himself in us through his Holy Spirit who dwells in us. I've said before here that there are inner workings of God in Scripture and there are outer workings of God or the Holy Spirit in Scripture. So don't confuse the indwelling and baptism of the Holy Spirit with an outer working. Okay? Outer workings in Scripture are never normative. They're never the norm. Inner workings are always normative. And it's important that we make a distinction and know the difference. The Holy Spirit is God revealed in us. How he chooses to manifest that in different ways at different times is up to God. That's an outer working. But the inner working, the revelation of Christ in us, always is always to point us and other people to him. So the point of all that is, God is revealed in us. And if the world is going to know the Father, for the most part, they're going to see him in us. That is the chief way, I'm convinced, that the world will know God through us. That's why he established the church. What does that mean for us personally? It means that every single thing that we do should reveal Christ in us. Everything we do should reveal Christ in us to others. I'll be the first to admit that I fall woefully short of that goal. But that is or it should be our goal. So ask yourself today, is my attitude revealing Christ to others? Is my speech revealing Christ to others? Are my actions revealing Christ to others? I think it's a healthy reality check to ask those questions every day and in every circumstance that we're in. Hurting people are drawn to Christ in us. Have you ever noticed at work or with a neighbor, have you ever had anyone who they, they may or may not know you're a Christian, but anytime they have a problem, they want to come talk to you instead of the other people at work? Why is that? Because people are drawn to Christ in you. People see something in you that they, they, sometimes not consciously, but they know they need, and they're drawn to that. If we rightfully represent Christ in all that we do, <clears throat> I honestly believe we'll have to drag extra chairs in this sanctuary because people will want what we have here. That's a, a lofty goal, but it's one worth shooting for, okay? One reason that the church has been so maligned over the last two or three decades is because the world has watched church-going Christians profess Christ and promote the church while living lifestyles outside of the church that are no different from those who say there is no God. And the clergy is as guilty as anyone. Catholic, Baptist, Methodist, Pentecostal, across the board, we've seen ministers, some high profile of course, living outside of the church as if God and his word don't exist. But just as Jesus doesn't give up on his bride, I am not giving up on the church. 
It's time that we own up, guys, to, to who and what we are. We are children of the Most High God. And He's revealing Himself to a lost and dying world through all of us. It's time that we let our light shine brightly. And there's no better time to do that than the Christmas season. So over the next couple of weeks, we're going to explore this last point God revealed in us in greater depth. And we will talk a little bit deeper about how that affects us personally, okay? So this is just an overview. We're going to look specifically at how He reveals Himself in us and His attributes in us and through us, okay? So we're out of time, but until we dis, uh, continue this discussion, let's remember, please remember, there's a lost and dying world out there all around us, and they're watching us. This Christmas season, let's try to make everything that we do a shining example, a shining revelation of Christ to a world that needs Him more than ever, okay? Would you pray with me? Let's bow our heads.